that. So there's a lot of talk about did it go on too long? And even worse, I honestly feel that the Fed is doing quantitative easing right now. <laughs> if you look at the bonds that they're buying and the maturities of them and the amount of money that they're spending, I think it's a QE program, even though they're not really calling it that. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is you can't do it indefinitely. I believe that we're somewhat outside of the realm of fundamental economics, meaning that the growth that we're seeing in the market, to me, no longer seems to be really proportionally tied with the profitability of the corporations that we're supposed to be investing in. Right. And the problem is when the other shoe drops, what are the ripple effects going to be? And I don't, I don't know if we really know beyond saying, well, there's probably going to be a pullback in the equity market and people who have been riding this bull market, this cyclical bull market, looking at it uh, simply with the question of, can I make more money? without asking the question of, am I really buying things at a price in terms of what they're worth, looking at a valuation type question, I think they're probably going to get burned again. Thanks for watching this RTD interview. Don't forget to pick up your RTD Scary George Round, only available at stbullion.com. Now enjoy this interview. Welcome to this RTD interview. Today, I'm excited to have first-time guest, Mr. Sam McElroy. He's a financial advisor at atfinancial.com, and today he's joining us to share his thoughts on a variety of subject matter when it comes to dealing with credit issues, just financial literacy in general. So I'm excited to have Sam join us. So Sam, welcome to RTD interviews. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate you taking time to sit down with us and share your thoughts and your experience as, a, as an advisor because there's, there's more than enough issues that we face as, in, as investors, whether it be directly, with, you know, directly in the markets or as passive investors. So I'm curious to find out your experiences and some of the information you share with your clients. But before we dive into that, can you give us a little bit of your background and how you've arrived at this point in your career? Yeah, you know, my background is, is a little bit eclectic. You know, I have been working in the financial services industry uh, for over the last decade working primarily with individuals that we do some business consultation as well. But in addition to that, I also have a background in clinical psychology. And in fact, I find that it's kind of the, the merge between those two disciplines that gives us a little bit of a unique perspective on a lot of financial topics, especially when it comes to the psychology of personal finance. So, you know, over, you know, many different things that have happened <laughs> and all the different ways that life takes us down different courses, we're fortunate to be able to have a series of really good mentors kind of in both disciplines that allowed me to kind of get to the place to where we launched App Financial uh, back in 2011. All right. Sounds good. So I appreciate you for sharing that. So uh, I want to dive right into some, my first question is being that you're in the financial realm, you'd work with people directly. And so you get a chance to merge, as you mentioned, two different uh, sectors together to really get a better understanding of how people function, and operate with their money. And so at this current moment, uh, outside of the fact that there's a lot of bad news out there about uh, massive unemployment and, you know, the, the, the monetary system for some is doing well, for others, it's not as well. Mm -hmm. And so what are some things that really concerns you at this current point, based upon all the information you gather and working with your clients? What are some things that, you know, comes across your desk that concerns you? Yeah. You know, if I, if I think about it, there's probably three or four really core issues that I think are kind of concerning right now. And they're kind of macroeconomic issues, but a lot of them have to do with just you know, behavioral economics also, just the way that we view working with money and the relationship that money has in our life. Mm -hmm. uh, one of those is that I find that we are really in this situation where we're compartmentalizing all of our financial spheres, so to speak. So, you know, we have strategies over here to try to mitigate or pay taxes. We have 
you know, strategies to try to handle insurance and things that we try to do around investments. But because the industry is so fractionalized, meaning that typically there's one individual siloed in an area offering expertise to us as clients, and none of them are communicating, none of them are kind of talking to each other, you end up with these uh, disconnected financial plans, if you can really call them that, that doesn't see the individual as a unique person. It's almost just trying to rinse and repeat as quickly as possible so that we can go on to the next client. And it's very common that I see people with overlapping strategies or strategies that are literally running in opposition to one another. So that's one of the big issues. Mm. I think one of the other ones is that as a result of the economic boom that we had in the 80s and 90s, I think that there's an overutilization and almost a misutilization of the stock market. Mm. I think the stock market is a valuable tool for people to invest and try to grow their wealth. But I get the sense that a lot of people view it almost like a slot machine. You know, I insert a dollar and I, I rip the cord and, you know, we kind of see what money spits out. And I think that people don't understand not only the risk that they take sometimes in the stock market until they get burned, but also they don't understand how to take that wealth accumulation process and then on the back end create sustainable income. And so people end up in situations where they think they're doing something that's really going to help them uh, with respect to how they are going to take income, but they're actually utilizing strategies that end up constricting their usable cash flow. And then lastly, I think it circles around the conversation of debt. We've gotten in this place where we're into debt management and it's because we have a misunderstanding of how debt actually works. In fact, if people really understood the way that banks use mathematical processes in their favor around this world of debt, uh, I think that they'd see that debt really can be one of the biggest destroyers of wealth for an individual. And I think that misunderstanding has robbed a lot of people of forward progress from a financial standpoint. Interesting. Now, one of the things you mentioned uh, was just, you know, treating each individual with their own unique case because everyone mm -hmm. has, you know, their own specific outcome that they would like to achieve. Of course, everyone wants their, their funds to be taken care of and grow throughout time. And so one of the things that really concerns me uh, in the alternative media space that I'm in now is the fact that my personal opinion is that we, I learned a lot from the great financial crisis. And so me personally having experienced some losses and it really got me to rethink a lot of things in particular when it comes to investing. And mm -hmm. so as someone that advises people, how much do you take into consideration the, 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 the shift in monetary policy since the great financial crisis that has probably altered the, the typical narrative of investing because I believe that the stock market, this current rally we're having now is more monetary policy induced as opposed to old fundamentals based upon actual investing. Yeah. Well, does that play into your, into your advice that you give people based upon where they're at now and what possibly could be coming? Cause it's been 10 years of a bull market and it can't last forever. I don't think so. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it plays out in really two big ways. <clears throat> so number one, Whenever we are in a stalled economy, like we were uh, kind of going through the Great Recession, the Fed, in a sense, is encouraged to get involved. In, and I don't want to weigh on whether we needed to do all the stuff that they did, but I, I feel like it was necessary because we were in a stalled economy. You have to manufacture growth when you don't actually see it. Hence, all the quantitative easing and some of the other programs that we kind of got into to start when basically we had stalled out. I think one of the issues is that, you know, it's, it's kind of like an addiction in a sense. Mm -hmm. When you get used to having cheap available money, 
uh, and you can kind of infuse it into the system with what seems to be little to no repercussions, it's really hard to then have the discipline to say, we're going to stop that. So there's a lot of talk about, did it go on too long? And even worse, I honestly feel that the Fed is doing quantitative easing right now. <laughs> if you look at the bonds that they're buying and the maturities of them and the amount of money that they're spending, I, I think it's a QE program, even though they're not really calling it that. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is you can't do it indefinitely. I, I believe that we're somewhat outside of the realm of fundamental economics, meaning that the growth that we're seeing in the market, to me, no longer seems to be really proportionally tied with the profitability of the corporations that we're supposed to be investing in. Right. And the problem is, when the other shoe drops, what are the ripple effects going to be? And I don't, I don't know if we really know beyond saying, well, there's probably going to be a pullback in the equity market and people who have been riding this bull market, this cyclical bull market, looking at it, Uh, simply with the question of, can I make more money without asking the question of, am I really buying things at a price in terms of what they're worth, looking at a valuation type question, Mm -hmm. I think they're probably going to get burned again because it's the whole casino effect. You know, when you come off a year like you had last year and you see 20% plus profits, very few people really then say, you know what, I'm going to sell and take my profits and go home. They think, well, you know, let's roll it again because maybe I'm not going to get 20 this year, but maybe I'll get five or 10. So no one actually sees the drop when it starts to come. And when it does start to happen, it's usually too late when people actually start to pull out. So they end up selling at the worst possible time. So all of that becomes a huge issue, I think. Right. I would agree. And so one of my concerns, and, and so I'm excited to have someone such as you on here who is actually in the investing world, who give, gives sound advice to other individuals. And so I wanted to talk about some of the things that's usually not covered. And so yeah. just a very word investing to me was, was altered the moment that QE started. And so mm-hmm. we, we know, and so you're aware of the fact that the markets are being propped up. So they're artificial in nature. And therefore, one thing that concerns me is that you know, you have a lot of millennials that are being encouraged to, you know, start off the narrative, get out of college, start your job, get in, get your portfolio rolling, things like that. And they have no true education as to what they're putting their money into. And mm-hmm. then we have the baby boomer generation, which, which is looking to get out. So it's that thing of like, okay, how does, how does all this unwind is one thing that concerns me because I don't look at investing the conventional way prior to the great financial crisis the same anymore. And so as a part of your strategy with individuals, what are some things that you probably lay out for people to consider uh, when it comes to the risk side of things? Yeah. Yeah. So great question. You know, a lot of times when we talk about diversification, and I think that's another word that's lost its meaning, mm-hmm. you know, we, we take diversification these days to mean, well, do I have a lot of different stuff? But the whole purpose of diversification as a risk mitigating tool is to try to have things that act and feel differently in different economic environments. And when you look at diversification, I think people diversify in one dimension. So basically they look at, do I have different asset classes? Do I have different uh, sectors and stuff like that? But really I think proper diversification operates in three planes. You have to look at it from asset class and style box and stuff like that. But then you also got to look at diversification by tax bucket and you gotta look at diversification by purpose. And it's that last one, diversification by purpose, that I think can really help save people. Because a lot of times when people start thinking about what is the purpose, the end goal of what I'm trying to utilize this dollar for, it can help you to lead to choosing a better strategy. And I always say strategy will be product any given day. You know, Too often people try to find 
this magic investment that's going to make them a kajillion dollars. But if they actually just have a good plan and if they implement the right strategy, that will take us so much further and protect us from unnecessary risk. You know, the problem is when you don't have a solid plan or strategy in place, everything becomes subjective. So you might be taking uh, exponentially more risk in one product. And when you look at it from a strategy standpoint of what my end goal is, you might find that it doesn't actually get you any closer towards your goal than if you did this other strategy that had you know, you know, much, much less risk, I guess. And so it's really starting to think through it from a practical, experiential standpoint that I think can help save people in the long run. Now, one of the benefits, just kind of going to the generations, because <laughs> you were talking about the millennials versus the baby boomers, this is something that's going to be really interesting because the baby boomer generation is the mutual fund generation. Mm -hmm. You know, when they were in their peak spending was in the height of the 80s and 90s, which was the best bull market that we've ever had in the history of the market. And I think that's one of the reasons why the baby boomer generation thinks that the stock market is just this place where they can pump out enormous wealth because they were rewarded for being more aggressive uh, historically. Now, the millennial population, even though some of them are you know, investing in the market and doing some of those things, one of the things that I've noticed is that they've witnessed two major market corrections, the dot-com bubble and the subprime mortgage crisis. And I'm seeing a lot of millennials that are just not that eager <laughs> to get into the market also. They're, they're looking for a different way because they also have a deep distrust of the, of the financial you know, mechanism and systems. So all of that coupled together just kind of makes them not really want to dump a whole lot of money into the market. But unfortunately, a lot of the things that you can do outside of the market just don't get talked about enough. And so people don't know where to turn. All right. Good point there. Now, you, you hinted at having a good strategy. And so given the fact that the, that the current environment we're in now is not conventional based upon, as you mentioned, the 80s when it was you know, a great time for the baby boomer generation. And so how much now does monetary policy? and the Federal Reserve and, you know, cause we're just talking about here in the US, but there are mm -hmm. several instances in, in the EU where quantitative easing and all types of asset purchases is taking place, which creates an artificial nature to where, how much of a strategy can you help someone formulate for their long-term goal, ultimately of, of preserving their wealth and having it grow? Mm -hmm. You know, how does monetary policy impact a strategy? Cause it can definitely, you can have plans to do this, but yeah. if you're pumping QE and all types of things that we've yet to see, that can really alter your plans, I would imagine. Okay. Yeah, in, in a sense it can. But it, it, I guess it turns more to contingency plans in a sense. So, so what I mean by that is, you're right. Uh, I remember a report that uh, the, the World Bank put out uh, last year where they basically said that just about every major World Bank is doing some type of artificial stimulus. And it was not just the United States, but Japan and China and in the Eurozone and the United States, basically everybody was, was willing to do that to some degree. And that does significantly change the landscape. So what that means is that there's a lot of things that are going to be happening from a credit standpoint and a lot of things that are going to be happening from an investment standpoint that not that we ever have control over, but even to this, you know, to this degree, we may have even less control or predictive ability might be a better word maybe than control over what's going to happen in the future. So when you start talking about strategy, you start thinking about, you know, blocking and tackling. You think about the basics. So do you have a solid financial plan and foundation that you're building your financial world around? Do you have the proper leverage in terms of risk mitigation? Are you doing things to hyper accelerate 
uh, any amortization schedule you have so that you can be debt-free faster? Are you doing things that are in different types of asset classes and different types of investments in and of themselves so that everything isn't at the same risk level and you're not you know, basically betting everything on the market having spectacular results? You, know, you mentioned something earlier about how the investment world changed, and I think this is a big thing that changed. And it's the word investment just in and of itself. You know, I think of what banks uh, do every day as an investment. Right? They have a book, they can manage it, they have predictive ability on it. And I can just imagine, you know, if I were to go to Chase and say, hey, listen, uh, I got a good investment deal for you. I want to go buy this house and I need a mortgage, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, I run my own business and, you know, we're doing pretty well these days. So I tell you what, uh, in years where we do really well, I'm going to cut you a really big check. But in years where we don't do so well, I may not pay you. And if we do really poorly, I may need you to pay me actually, okay? So, so give me that investment. <laughs> and there's not a bank in the world that's going to do that because it's not an investment. That's speculation. <laughs> yeah. And it's the same thing. When I go into an investment and I know the terms of the deal, I know when I'm going to get paid, by whom I'm going to get paid, and how I'm going to get paid, then you can call it an investment. Mm -hmm. When I don't have those predictive abilities, it's a speculative investment, but it's really speculation. And I think that's what people are mis misutilizing. You know, because we have all this historical data and we can say there's never been a historical period where such and such hasn't happened in the market, we say that it has less risk. But at the end of the day, it's still speculation. We know that you could lose everything. In fact, I've seen portfolios where people have, you know, these investments that they went into thinking that it was the next best thing. And now, you know, they're trading for pennies and they've lost 90 some plus percent of the money that they put into it. So just because people haven't had that happen to them, they think it doesn't happen. But when you have enough experience and you've seen these things happen, you understand the speculative nature of being in the market. And that doesn't mean that it's not good. It just means that you have to understand what it basically is as a tool for long-term growth. And as long as you do that, you can really start to mitigate some of the Fed interference or bank interference because you're not counting that as my day-to-day -day living money that I'm gonna to try to have a greater degree of predictability on it. I'm viewing that as my longer-term speculative bucket, hoping that over a long period of time, it'll be worth more than what it is today. Thanks for watching this interview. If you're enjoying content like this, feel free to become a part of the RTD community by becoming a member via Patreon. All it takes is a monthly contribution of about $5 a month for more great content such as this. Just scroll down beneath this video here and click the Patreon link, and then hit this tab right here to become a member of the team. Looking forward to bringing you more great content. Now, let's get back to this interview. Thanks. Interesting, interesting. I appreciate you for sharing that. And so one of the things, and so I don't want to appear to be such a uh, contrarian slash I'm trying to, you know, disrupt the narrative. But yeah, there was a lot of things I'm concerned with. So my, my audience, you know, we're heavy precious metals enthusiasts as a hedge against all the paper and digital products out there that, you know, a lot of people don't have confidence anymore, especially the younger generation. And so uh, I want to transition to just the lack of financial literacy to where yeah. majority of the people are not aware how to a, a, write, a, write a check if they even still do that anymore. I, I know I still do mm -hmm. one every now and then, but just balance your, your overall balance sheet. Just you know, take care of not, not overextending yourself beyond your limitations to repay. And so there's all types of statistics about uh, you know, people having less than $400 saved, mm -hmm. no emergency fund, and all that stuff outside of the, the problems our, our government's having with corporate debt, all types of debts at all time highs. So debt is gonna be a major issue that I believe will be addressed this year, this decade somehow, some way, when it comes to your personal financial matters. What are some practical things you encourage people to do with just getting a little leeway to begin being able to invest in something yeah. and pre yeah. prepare for their future? 
Well, the first thing that we have to understand, and this is just prudent advice, is that everybody shouldn't run out to start investing right away. If you don't have a good cash flow plan, meaning that if you haven't gotten to the point to where you have a balanced budget, there's more coming in each month than what's going out, you really shouldn't be looking at investments yet. And before you start running out into investments, if you don't have a solid or at least a decent start to an emergency fund, if you haven't taken care of certain insurances and some of these other pieces, then you really shouldn't bother investing yet. And the reason for that is because uh, if you don't have those foundational pieces in place and then situations change or your economic fact pattern changes to some degree, then you end up unraveling all the work that you did and you'll find that you know, you, you didn't really have any benefit from trying to step out and do some of the investing that you should have done first. But I think that another piece that kind of goes into that is just understanding debt. You know, there's this conversation about good debt versus bad debt. And from a technical standpoint, I wouldn't argue with anyone about that yet. You know, taking on some debt to acquire an asset, I can get behind that to some degree. But I know practically and experientially just talking to people who are debt free and working aggressively to get there myself, it's better to be debt-free than to have debt. <laughs> you know, I, I've, I've had the benefit of talking to some very successful entrepreneurs uh, and investors, and the thing that they always come back and tell me is that, you know, when you don't owe anyone anything, it doesn't really cost that much to have a really good standard of life. And so I think that's a good piece. But there's a misunderstanding here of how debt even works. For example, uh, I was having a conversation with someone, and this is probably a couple months ago, and they were talking about this auto loan that they had and how they had a really low interest rate at like 2 or 3%. And so they were saying, well, if money's that cheap, then aren't I better off going out and borrowing uh, at that rate, especially if I can go invest somewhere else and make some other amount of money. But the problem is when I talk about a 2 or a 3% interest rate, that is not talking about the interest cost or the volume of interest. An interest rate is actually a measure of speed or velocity. All it tells you is at what speed you're paying interest. But when you calculate the numbers, you might find that 20 or 30 or 50 or 60 cents on the dollar for every payment you make is going towards an interest cost. In fact, I believe that's one of the reasons why the whole truth in lending had to come out in the mortgage industry, because people would go out and borrow a million dollars at 3% thinking their interest is $30,000 and they found out that they end up paying $3 million for that million dollar piece of property. So we have to understand that interest rates are not telling you the actual volume of interest you pay. And that's why you may be racking up interest or racking up debt and you may feel like, well, I'm managing all of it, not understanding why you have this nagging feeling in the back of your mind that you're not progressing as fast financially as you'd like to. And the reason for that is because you have this weight that's basically dragging you down that you don't really understand its impact in the wealth destruction process, basically. Now, as we move forward, I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on some, some individual strategies outside of, uh, so if the equities markets are, are going to continue to increase due to probably the you know, implementation of monetary policy and things of that nature. The bond market, you know, we had an inverted yield curve a while ago. So those all, all have always been indicators of a recession mm -hmm. and all those type of things. And so for your younger millennial who might not have as much confidence in the equities markets due to uh, them having a chance to witness a couple of uh, some, some market corrections, what are some individual strategies, of course, like outside of the conventional that you yeah. can probably throw out there that might be worth taking a look at and educating yourself on. Yeah, there's a number. And I would say take all of this with a grain of salt because it takes some ability to know how to operate in all these different worlds. But, you know, there's, there's a misperception out there 
that everybody's money is in the stock market. But the U.S. stock market has a $20 trillion valuation these days and about a $200 billion average trading volume. The U.S. bond market has a $40 trillion valuation and a daily trading volume of $700 billion. So literally, the U.S. bond market is twice the size of the U.S. stock market. And we talk about this because <clears throat> there's, there's this universe that we call the universe of non-stock market income-generating strategies, which deals with securities and investments that are not in the stock market, that are typically debt instruments, that pay you a return, not in the form of capital appreciation, but in dividends and interest and, and income, basically. Not saying everybody needs to ditch all their stocks and go out and just buy a whole bunch of bonds, but what we found is that when you talk about the universe of non-stock market income generating strategies, most people have no idea what you're talking about. And part of it is that they just need more balance. Don't put everything in the market, have a balance between some things that are maybe in the market and some things that are more income generating and true income generating. So not inside of a fund, but an actual security or an actual bond or something like that that you hold. Now, in addition to that, there's a widely contentious debate out there on utilizing things like life insurance as an investment vehicle. And I understand the math behind it, um, but in my own personal finances, I, I utilize life insurance quite heavily. Uh, in fact, out of every asset that I own, it is the one that I've gotten the most utilization out of so far. And it depends on how you structure it, depends on how you utilize it. So I think that that's a great alternative also. And then looking at tangible things like precious metals or like real estate. I think that the key isn't that there's one thing that's good and another thing that's bad. The problem is people don't have enough balance. And if they just understand the pros and cons of every type of investment vehicle, then they can start to figure out how much they want to weight towards any one particular thing. And by having more balance across all these different areas, it just makes it so that you're not as susceptible to the same risks all the time. All right. So the balance you're referring to is more so according to your, your strategy, your own individual plan. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming there's different categories of risk because if you're later in life looking to withdraw yourself from the workforce, i.e. retirement, you're at lower risk. So there's a strategies for that. And if you're younger, you're a little bit more, you're able to take on a little bit more risk because you have a little bit more time, quote unquote. Is that kind of, is that kind of how it plays out? Yeah. In, in a sense it does. And you know, um, when you're thinking about risk, one of the other things we have to understand is that risk is subjective until we have an objective standard by which to even talk about risk. Most people really don't even know what they're talking or thinking about. All they've heard is terms that get thrown around like conservative, moderate, aggressive. But until there's an objective standard, well, what do you really mean? I mean, what, what you consider to be moderate might be what I call aggressive. Mm -hmm. so, so we have to even start to change the whole conversation and narrative around how we define risk. What we really need to think about is more practically what could go wrong and what might that look like and am I okay with that? <laughs> and we start to get down to what we're really talking about. Right. Um, but, but, you know, for example, when you're thinking about investments, and you're talking about time horizons, the same way that rate of that uh, interest rates are a measure of speed, we have to also understand that rate of return is a measure of speed. So a lot of times the mistake that we make from from a strategy standpoint is we think that rate of return is the same thing as output. But rate of return governs at what speed the things we own increase or decrease in volume. A portfolio output or investment output tells you at what rate can you spend the things you own. And one of the problems is that when people try to spend based off their rate of return, 
they actually end up creating all types of risks that never were present before. And that's one of the reasons why people may be getting good rate of returns, but unknowingly are cannibalizing the very investments they're trying to live off of. So when we talk about strategy, part of it is just better education on how some of these mathematical processes actually work so that people can make a more informed decision. All right, understandable. Now, as we draw towards the end of our discussion, I'm curious to get your thoughts. And so the name of this show is called Rethinking the Dollar. And mm-hmm. it, it came about from my younger years of having a chance to travel. And, and I played some professional sports in different countries. And a good portion of the countries I lived in, their currencies uh, it be- became the problem. And so the financial advice that would probably be given to them doesn't really apply to what we would be given here because we have the reserve currency. And mm-hmm. so it's, I'm of the mindset that eventually at some point in, in, in the future, we're going to have to address from the monetary policy and the fiscal policy, the, the debt, all that issues that we're having with Uncle Sam deficits and things of that nature, eventually we're going to have a currency issue, I believe, at some point. And so we're talking about risk. I think the ultimate risk down the line will be within our currency. And so it, it, do you personally, as an advisor, as someone who deal with a variety of strategies, do you ever take mm-hmm. into consideration that at some point inflation might pick up and because the Federal mm-hmm. Reserve can't seem to find 2%, but yet price of living in several Mm -hmm. areas indicate a lot higher. Can you see a point in the future where a currency becomes a risk where it really upends a lot of people's strategies? I want to say yes and no. Um, I think that without a doubt, the amount of sovereign debt that we're carrying, the amount of sovereign debt that many countries around the world is carrying is a threat. It's an issue. Um, You know, you talk about world reserve currency and some of these other issues that directly impact the United States and all of that is problematic. However, from a, from a principle standpoint of economics, you know, a dollar or any currency really is about supply and demand. It represents, you know, so much goods, so much warmth, so much uh, entertainment, whatever it is, it's just the way that we trade with each other. And we're always going to have a need to try to, I guess, legitimize the way that we barter and trade with each other so that we're not going back to trading actual goods and services uh, and some of those other issues. And a lot of that has to do with deeper power struggles and issues throughout the world. I think that, yes, the United States has some issues that they're going to have to contend with. But at the end of the day, what would a world really look like where the United States and anyone holding the dollar and other larger countries around the world really were going to materially change the way that economics function. The problem that I foresee, and I don't want to be doom and gloom, is that I I think that it's impossible to separate a world shakeup like that from war, from real conflict. And it's not to say that that will never happen, but it's to say that there are a lot of very powerful, wealthy individuals who it would not be their best interest for that type of thing or scenario to really play out. So, Sam McElroy, it's been great having you here on RTD. Can you point people back in your direction so they can find out more about your services and how yeah. to you know, stay in tune with what you have going on? <laughs> yeah, the easiest way is probably just our website, which is www.atfinancial.com. So, www.atfinancial.com. From there, you can go to the info page, check out other media appearances, uh, you know, sign up for our market commentaries, all that good stuff. 
Sounds good. Once again, Sam, it's been great having you on RTD. Hope to have you back on in the future, and we'll get a chance to assess uh, some strategies and whatnot as we move further in the year and into the to this interesting decade I believe we're going to have. So once again, uh, thanks <laughs> for taking time to join me on RTD. Yeah, it's my pleasure.